Hello and welcome to Veterans for Responsible Leadership's podcast in Accountable America. Thanks for joining us. I'm your producer and co-host, Jason Belcher. I'm an Iraq veteran and former Air Force officer. With us today, we have the founder and president of VFRL, Dr. Dan Barkoff, who is a current emergency room physician and former Navy SEAL. And our guest today, Commander Bobby Jones, who is a 2001 graduate of the Naval Academy and has over 20 years of experience as a surface warfare officer with the United States Navy. So, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you, Jason. Happy to be here. Thank you very much for, for inviting me. This is, this is an honor and a pleasure. So, Bobby, my first question, man, have you hugged any presidents lately? <laughs> no, I, I, was, I was told by many people who are a lot more important than you or I that is frowned upon in the officership world of the United States <laughs> Navy and Marine Corps. So, <laughs> no, I've not, I've not done that. But ironically, I, over the past few years, I've definitely been in touch with uh, President Bush uh, yeah. He congratulated me on when I got command, and it was it was really cool that he had kept up with things. So nice, man. So for our listeners who may not know, so uh, Bobby and I were the same Naval Academy class, um, and at the at graduation, this this is May two thousand one, and uh, you know three or four months, whatever before nine eleven. Um, you know, George Bush, well, the, the president of the United States kind of goes around to all the different service academies. So one year he might do West Point, one year he does Navy, you know. And so this was our year for uh, the president to come to Annapolis and, and, uh, and talk about it. And, you know, um, we had this tradition uh, at the Naval Academy of the, uh, the anchorman, um, who, was, who was Bobby, uh, who basically like, the, the last person to walk across the stage and uh, the last person to graduate, essentially. And uh, Bobby gets so pumped up and so excited. Uh, he picked up uh, George Bush, who, um, you know, you might not know, is not the biggest man, and kind of <laughs> spun him around. And, uh, you know, the Secret Service about had a, had a heart attack there for a second. But, uh, yeah. So what was, the, uh, what was the immediate fallout of that, Bobby? Uh, I got called back to announce. I had to write apology letters to the Secretary of the Navy, the Secretary of the Defense, the Chief of Naval Operations, and the Commandant of the Marine Corps. Ironically, oh, I didn't have to apologize to the President. So, And that took about two weeks. Um, and then they were like, go serve your country. Um, and at the time, it was, who was it, Admiral um, Locklear who became Pedro. And, yep. and, 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 and it was Colonel, you know, Allen who became, you know, the four-star in charge of uh, Afghanistan <laughs> eventually. So um, they, they were not pleased at the time. That, but, uh, uh, you yes. know, I'm just happy to graduate. Um, heck yeah, man. So, you know, that, so, you know, let's, let's back up a little bit. You know, um, you came to the Naval Academy from the, uh, from the great state of Georgia, but wh- where in Georgia are you from? Um, I'm originally from Fayetteville, Georgia. It's part of Southwest Metro Atlanta, right outside, like about 10 miles from the Atlanta International Airport. So um, I came from there. I I went to one of the best college prep high schools in in the country, uh, the Westminster Schools of Atlanta. And um, to be honest, you know, I started there in seventh grade and was not an athlete, didn't do any of that stuff. Um, but as I went through high school, especially my junior year, when I started playing football, things kind of came together. Yep. Um, my uh, dad had played in the NFL for the Atlanta Falcons back in the seventies. So oh, I didn't know next that. thing I know, Oh yeah. And so next thing I know, I was some big time quote unquote recruit, but I can tell you the first exposure I had to the Navy and the Naval Academy, I was what, seven or eight. And I remember mm-hmm. watching David Robinson play for Navy in the yes. tournament. Everybody right. said how big a thrill it was that Navy was there, and to me, I just thought it was a you know a bunch of enlisted sailors, you right. know, getting a basketball team together. And my mom said, "No, no, I believe that's a school." That was the first exposure. Fast forward to that junior year, um, I'm sorry, that my sophomore year, the year before I played football, um, I wrote the Naval Academy because I saw one of their catalogs in our library and it had. Yep a bunch of shipping in their dress blues with their swords and it looked so nice. So I asked the question, what does it take to get looked at or how do I do that? Next thing I know, I'm, the basketball team was recruiting me and then the football team eventually recruited me. 
Now, that being said, I'd love to tell you guys, oh, man, I knew I was going to do the whole Navy thing, A1. But by the time I was a senior, I was a top 100 player in the entire South. Uh, I had, you know, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, all these schools offered me scholarships. And to be honest, I did summer seminar, and I was like, I'm going to go there, right? Well, fast forward to my mom and dad basically saying, you promised the coaches you take your last visit to Navy. And at this point, I was going to go to North Carolina. Um, yeah. Great academic institution. I was going to be yeah. a journalism major, and a four to one girl girl to guy ratio. What what more could you not want? Seventeen, <laughs> eighteen year old. Right. I'll tell you when I got to when I got to Annapolis, and I took that visit. My my running mate, the person who dragged me, was Clint Bruce. Yeah. And you know, Dan, you may know him. Uh, another <laughs> former SEAL, but Clint is like a motivational speaker now and stuff. He has a way of making you think. And so when they took me around, you know, I went to class. I went to thermodynamics. I didn't get to go party and stuff like other schools, and it kind of ticked me off. The last place they took me was Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium. And after visiting Georgia and Tennessee and seeing the national championship banners, the SEC championship banners, when you walk into Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium, even back then, the first thing you see are the battles on the facade of the stadium. So yellow foot, wake, oral, all this stuff. And I'm just like, this place is different. It hits different. And Clint, I'll never forget, he said, you're going to go in that locker room and you're going to make a decision on whether or not you want to come here or not. And at the time, the way the locker room was structured, the offense sat on one side, the defense sat on the other. The offense had John Paul Jones's quote, he who cannot risk cannot win. Then on the defensive side, it had, Hit hard, hit fast, hit often. William F. Halsey Jr., Navy fullback. Not, you know, Victor of World War II and all. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sitting in this locker room thinking to myself, why is this hitting me so differently, right? And I'm doing the pros and the cons. And as I came out, before I said anything, Clint said, understand this. This is a type of institution and a type of service that does not beg you to join. Either you're, you feel the calling or you don't. And so, yeah. you know, I, I admit I felt the calling to serve, you know. Um, and it, you're just a different breed of kid at that age to sit there and say, I don't want the fame and the fortune. I want to come up here and get my butt kicked. And then, you know, we checked in. I day July 1st, 97. I wanted to go yep. home July 1st, 97. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered what I was doing. But that's how I wound up at Navy, getting on campus, but seeing what these people were about, and it was different. It was the first time in my life I think I felt patriotic, you know, towards the nation, you know. Let me ask you this. So, yeah, yeah. So, you know, a lot of the folks who've come on here, you know, joined uh, joined the military post 9-11, right? You know, and, and... I can certainly, had I not been in the military um, at the time, you know, I could certainly imagine myself having done that, right? Like, you know, oh, you know, the planes hit the towers, I'm going out of the nearest recruiting office or whatever. What, what was your, you stayed in for, well, I mean, 22 years, essentially. So, you know, what was your um, 9-11 feelings and, and kind of how, how did that change or did it change for you? You know what you want. So when 9-11 happened, I was up at SWAS, Surface Warfare Officer School, which mm-hmm. for the Surface Warfare community is our first and our big, um, and, you know, um, primary training. Yep. And we were taking a PRT that morning, and we went back to shower, and we saw the second plane hit. And I grabbed, I had four different roommates, so I grabbed them all, stuck them in my car, and we drove on campus back to Newport because I remember when Pearl Harbor happened, everybody had to report to their nearest active duty station. Yep. And all chaos was breaking loose. Um, the War College, which is where it's located in Newport, they became the, the primary thing, the, a primary operations center because the side that got hit at the Pentagon, a lot of it had a lot of Navy staff on that side. So yeah, um, I, I literally sat there and watched in disbelief and the commanding officer of Surface Warfare Officer School came in and we were all huddled around a little TV watching and he said, look, expect your orders to be modified. You're going to get to your ships. The nation's in war. We will do our duty. And he kind of walked out. Now, in the couple of weeks before, you know, the few weeks afterwards, we started getting intel briefs and stuff like that. And I'll never forget 
they uh, the guy that we we just recently got the second in command. I'm trying to remember his name. Um, he made a statement to the effect of why go after the lions when there are so many sheep to be had. And it basically was talking about how Al Qaeda looked at targeting soft targets by coming yeah. directly at the military. Sure. And Dan, it was the ma- I think it's the maddest I've been in my military career because they were talking about going to the malls and going to nurseries and going and targeting schools. And I was like, how dare they? And they also implied that America does not have enough people, a generation of people who are willing to sacrifice everything for its survival. They implied that too. I remember that. And I'm like, who do you think you're dealing with? You know what I'm saying? But I'll tell you, but I'll tell you something else I took away from that, right? This is something that hit me hard, and it still hits me hard. Our enemies did not segregate us. They didn't target white Americans. They didn't target black Americans. They didn't target Asian Americans. They yeah. collectively looked at us as Americans. And so if they killed a bunch of black kids, they would have been happy. If they killed a bunch of white kids, I would have been happy. So our own enemies looked at us more unified than we did. And I never forgot that because we, and especially in this current environment, we are so quick to break ourselves up. But the threats that we face as a nation externally, they don't segregate us because yeah. they believe that if you are an American, you subscribe to a certain amount of ideals. And that is what they have a problem with. Let me, so let me, I took that thought process yeah. and left. So, you know, what you say is interesting, and you know, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, you went to a school, you know, you went to certain, you went to the Naval Academy, and you probably know better than I. What what percentage of the Naval Academy is African American? You know, so we we started out with a class when we checked in. It was like twelve oh four, I think it was. Yeah, and we graduated nine oh two on graduation day. Out of yeah. nine oh two fifty one were African-Americans, are classified as African-Americans. So if you look at the percentage, it was relatively yeah. low. Relative now it's gotten level. a little bit better. It's yep. gotten a lot. It's gotten a little bit better over the past 20 years. But understand this, the demographics at the academy um, have, have leaned a certain way for almost yep. its entire existence. Now, I will, I will offer, and I tell people this, well, first you look at the proportion of the population, because that's where we draw our military force from. And then you look at who's qualified and who's ready to take on that kind of commitment. That complicates things. I'm sitting here at Morehouse College, the school where Dr. King went to school. I'm looking at his statue right here. And I'm in charge of the ROTC unit here. Mm -hmm. And we have to deal with certain aspects. The military has to deal with certain aspects that for the longest time, they were not either ready to acknowledge admit or address right now culturally within america that's one thing that they have to overcome um the school system itself the university system whether you're talking about the academy or coming to a morehouse college or georgia tech or something like that and then the selection process of who we go after right all of these things are difficult for an institution like the navy the Department of Defense to deal with. It mm-hmm. does not mean that you don't have people in to serve because guess what? The highest propensity to serve in the United States military is the African-American male. Mm-hmm. One out of four black men ages 18 to 40 have some type of military or public service experience. We don't talk wow. about that though. Yeah. That's a yeah. high number. It's a high number. The issue that we have ran into historically has been having to reset the wheel. That's number one. And number two, this goes back to the Annapolis thing, putting people of diverse backgrounds in leadership positions of consequence. Yep. That's the other piece. We've, the first person to die for America was a black sailor by the name of Christmas Addicts. Mm-hmm. The Boston Massacre. Okay? He was an escaped slave. He became a longshoreman sailor. He was the first one to challenge the British, and he died for it. So we've been there from day one. Yep. The problem, though, is every time we want to volunteer and fight for freedoms that we never have necessarily had as an African-American, there's been the, the conscious and unconscious bias that has been translated legally to the point where it sets us back. 
And only when the nation is desperate do they allow us to serve. Washington did not want African Americans initially. He changed his mind as the war went on. The Civil War, Lincoln did not want African Americans initially. He changed his mind as the war went on. Mm-hmm. Right? I can go and cite this historically. Now, it, it's, it's beyond a history lesson because what it does, and specifically for the Navy and the Marine Corps, it creates this legacy and this culture that, say, black people are not necessarily welcome to. And so you have to fight that. And so when you talk about Annapolis, if you compare Annapolis's African-American population, historically, to West Point, for example, mm-hmm. or to where my brother went to the Air Force Academy, uh-huh. it is a nightmare. It's a significant difference, significant difference. And we could talk about the reasons why the other services have done better but the, re- the fact remains, it's still not where it probably should be and needs to be. Um, so, so, so are you saying, and I'm ignorant of this, but you're saying that there are more African-Americans at West Point, is that? Yes, so, uh, yeah, yes, historically okay. speaking, always has been. So for example, the first black graduate of West Point happened in 1877, if I'm not mistaken, Henry O. Flipper. He's from okay. the state of Georgia, yep. okay? He dealt with a lot of racism and he got court-martialed out the army later, but he was the first one. Our first black graduate, Wesley Brown, I met as a midshipman because he was class of 40, uh, 49. Yeah, yeah. so 75 years later. Right. Right, exactly. And then Air Force is completely different. Um, Air Force was born in the same executive order, basically, that desegregated the entire military. Yeah. So you look at the service the Air Force had, and then when they established their academy and their all-TC program, it was birth in an era of, okay, we have to integrate, we have to figure this out. And that happened because once we went to war in Korea, and particularly the Forgotten War, Mm -hmm. the first time we fought integrated units, we quickly saw the fallacy in the thought process of segregation, right? And we saw how combat ineffective it really would be. Because initially the units got to Korea, they were not integrated. Necessity integrated them, right? So Air Force has benefited from that legacy. Um, and mind you, when, I talk, when we talk about diversity, and one of my biggest issues that I have with this is people just look at skin color and maybe, maybe religious, religious um, and, um, preferences, but it's beyond that. The reason this matters, and the reason I honestly think it's a national security issue, is because we allow that appearance to lead to different experiences that people have, for better or for worse. When you experience things differently, it gives you a different perspective. And so me and you, Dan, can look at the same thing and see it two totally different ways. If you are an effective military force that could be dropped off anywhere, right? So I was expeditionary force, I was a riverine, you're a SEAL, you know they can drop us off at any point anywhere in the world. (laughs) You have to have the pensive flexibility to be able to perceive to perceive a problem in multiple ways in order to come up with the best course of action. When we allow that interaction of different experiences, you have that. When you have the same type of ducks picking ducks, you get you're subject to groupthink and it's hard to get out of it. So when I when I sit there and I say national security, I can be I'll give you a perfect example. When we first went into Afghanistan, and you know this better than anybody, having to find people to be translators, right? It's very difficult. We had incidents of, of our own people getting shot by said translators, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, at the ranch, we have a, an insanely large population of, of people who came from Afghanistan in Detroit, an Arab yeah. population in Detroit that are Arab Americans, who, by the way, see themselves as Americans, would love to prove themselves as Americans. And guess what? We know they're Americans. We did not tap into that resource to go, hey, would you like to become an officer in the military? We were literally cutting off our nose to spite our face, but paying how many millions of dollars for people who may or may not have our best interest in mind. Yeah, I know. We are the only nation on the planet, though. We're the only nation on the planet that can do that. Think about it. If I need to go to China, we can get people who have that background ancestry and they see themselves as Americans. They sent me to Liberia on an IA assignment because of my skin tone and this, that, and the other, and I blended right in. And when I responded to something right after the Civil War as a peacekeeper for the United Nations, it held different weight than, say, someone who looked like you. It is a tactical 
and strategic advantage that we have. But we don't look at it that way. And I think it's mind-boggling. Sorry for that. You know, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, I think back to, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Charlie Wilson's War. Um, yes. You know, the, the, the congressman, he talks about the, the CIA, uh, the case officer uh, who was like Greek, I think. And, you know, he... Um, mm-hmm. You know, he made he made the argument. You know, the CIA came up kind of in similar circumstances. This you know all white kind of boys club, all Ivy League white guys, and you know if you're trying to spy on people, you know you want to kind of look like the people you're trying to spy on. You know, and so right. there's there's that. I wonder, you know, we came of age in the military at a time where there wasn't sort of overt segregation and. What are your thoughts on, I mean, are people, is there still institutional racism in, in the military in your experience? And, and let me tell you a quick story and you tell me what you think about this. So when I was in, I was in Iraq um, and, and went to Fallujah, okay? And that was kind of my big thing. That was like the big thing I did in the SEAL teams was I took a sniper team to Fallujah. And uh, we were there for the offensive, and, you know, I come back and, uh, you know, come back from deployment, and there were, there were three officers in, in my platoon. We had, you know, our platoon commander and then myself and another officer. And our, our third officer, um, I won't use his name because I haven't talked to him about this, but he's an African-American guy, actually former uh, college football player. Um, and, you know, we had, we had a great relationship, still still in friends with the guy. And, you know, one time years later, I kind of asked him this question. I was like, you know, like, do you think there's still racism in the military? And, you know, what he said to me, he was like, he was like, yeah. And I was like, I was like, like, how, how do you, how do you, you know, what makes you say that? And he was like, it's not like people were, he said this exactly. It's not like people were, you know, burning a cross outside my door, right. but you went to Fallujah and I did. And his point was that, you know, almost as if, you know, he felt that he almost had been passed over um, right. for, for opportunities, not even, you know, for promotion and things like that. But if there was some, you know, big mission coming up, um, you know, it probably was going to go to somebody who looked like me. Right. And, and right, um, right. whether or not, you know, that was his perception. And, and so I'm curious, you're, you know, as somebody who was an officer for years and, and yep. in charge of people, some of whom may have, you know, been individual racists, like what was your experience? like? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a very well-worded question. And I believe, I don't believe the military is institutionally racist um, at least not anymore, because I can show you examples of what it was when it was. But I do believe there is an underlying unconscious bias that still remains. And a lot of that has to do primarily, in my humble opinion, with perception. The perception of leadership, it is still a thing. There are many people in our country that believe that if you look a certain way, you are a natural born leader. You are that person. And, you know, I think that is, to be honest with you, a very foolish way of looking at things because I don't believe in natural born leaders. I don't yeah. believe in leaders just, you know, popping out the womb and being leaders. No, leaders are not even made. They are forged, meaning they have to go against something difficult that shows a maturity and a resilience. And so if you know that, if, if you subscribe to that type of theory and you look around i'm sure whether it's in the teams whether it was in my squadrons whether it's out on a ship people know they know consciously who should be the person in charge based on how they perform and when that person is not selected for whatever reason and this mm-hmm. is i've clerked i've clerked command boards where i've seen the selection process personally and they try to make it as unbiased as possible however I also have seen it where if you work for the right person, you know what I'm saying, and you have their aroma on you, then you're looked at differently than someone else. Now, when you look at our current flag mess in the Navy, with all the thousands of people we have, when you have less than five African-American admirals, right, and, and we've been around since the Continental Navy, 
You have to ask yourself, really, but when you look at a chief's mess on any ship, yeah. and you see a, a proportionally high number of African-Americans, I'm using African-Americans as an example, but if you look at Filipinos in the Navy, if you look at Latinos in the Navy, if you look yeah. at them, you see a reoccurring thing. To me, after 240 years of this, you can no longer deny that there's something different here. Now, part of it, now, Bobby Jones's personal belief is very simple. The unconscious bias is one thing, but the traditions that have made the Navy the, the stellar force that it is has also hindered it in this aspect. I'll give you a perfect example. In the 20th century, we had seven presidents, seven that were part of the United States Navy. The United States Navy historically has been seen as the upper class service. You know, to be a maritime person, you have to have money to be on a boat, blah, blah, blah. So if you look at it, the Roosevelt's, both of them were assistant secretaries in the Navy. Sure. But I mean, Kennedy, yeah. um, Johnson, Nixon, yeah. Ford, Carter, they all serve. And here's the thing. It, it, it gives this persona of elitism within the wardroom structure. And it trickles down from that. Meanwhile, if you look at the Army, a, a service that is more grunt, than anything, at least that's how they like to perceive themselves. Yep. You see African Americans advancing at a faster rate. The Navy specifically has some cultural issues to deal with. When I got my appointment to the Naval Academy, all right, mm -hmm. my grandmother, I told my grandmother, who was born in 1917, hey, Grandma, I'm going to go to the United States Naval Academy. I'm going to Navy. And she said, confused, baby. Why would you do that? You're so much smarter than that. You can be more than just a cook. Because she thought I was joining wow. the Navy. Yeah. To become a cook. Because it, when she was younger, that's all we could be. And I had to painstakingly explain to her what it really was. Now, if that is the perception, right, of someone who has not served, and by the way, all of her sons, with the exception of my father, served in the military, Marines and Army. That says something, that says something, and that still pervades. And so when you translate that into, okay, I still chose to join the United States Navy. I come to, you know, let's say you come to Morehouse, which is a historically black college university, and people ask me, why am I joining the white man's Navy? And then I'm a I graduate, I become an officer and I'm competent, and the first time I've overcome all this and I'm getting looked at to be screened, I don't make it. I don't know why, because I don't have the mentorship others have, you know, and selecting the right sure. things. And I don't know why, even though I'm supposedly number one here, but no one's really broke down how to read a fit rep. And, and what happens is you sit there and you want to look at the system and like, the system is rigged against me. Part of that may be true, but at the same time, you were left kind of hanging because United States Navy, the DOD did not properly try to recruit you, try to educate people around you, what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. So Dan, I'll give you a perfect example. When you decided to go to the Naval Academy all the way back when, how did the people around you perceive that appointment? Oh, I mean, they're, they're very excited. You know, I mean, my grand, my grandfather was like a World War II army guy, you know, like they thought it was cool. Yeah. Family, literally my, my my immediate family was cool with it, but my extended family thought I was crazy. Yeah. They're like, why would you turn down Steve's yeah. University of Florida? Right. To go to school there. You know, say, go to the Navy. You could go to the NFL. You could do all these things. The, the prestige and the selection of going there. And in their minds, it was initially, they thought it was a waste of time. They really yeah. did. Now, 20 years, they, they now have a better understanding. But I did not get the pop and circumstance for my family, my extended family, my, you know, my friends around yeah. me and stuff, wind up to do this. And so the, the, I, had to look, I had to look back and I had to read books, Tuskegee Airmen, USS Mason. I, had, I read all of that stuff before I got to Annapolis because I'm a big reader of history. I love military history. And I had to ask myself the same question that was asked of them in the 40s. Why would you serve this country willingly as a black man? And my wife, who who's a class of 03 out of Annapolis, her grandfather was a Tuskegee Airman. So I, I asked him that question the first time I met him. Wow. You know what he said to me? He goes, yeah. well, 
it, it, it was our country too. He's like, we're not going anywhere. And he goes, and he said something to me that, that really resonated. He goes, when you fight for something, you're more likely to endure whatever afterwards. So it's not a coincidence like the civil rights movement kicked off after World War II. When you have black veterans that had fought just as hard but came back home, he told me the story he came to Norfolk, a place that I served out of, and he had to move to the back of a train for Nazi POWs. You know? <laughs> what kind of, it, it infuriated him. It infuriated him. Jesus. To the point where, I mean, yeah. and then he interviewed to be a professor at Penn State, and as soon as he walked in, this is 1946. They told him, "No, you can't do it." So he took his wife, and he went to he went to France for ten years. My father-in-law was born in France because he's like, yeah. "I fought for this country. This is unacceptable." And then he had a change of heart. He's like, "But you know what? I did fight for this country, so I'm going to fight for it." And so I've been asked this question a lot of times: Why would I do it? And it's because I believe in what America can be, not exactly what it was. That's two different things. Um, yeah. And I believe military service is the best way to unite the country as far as thought process, as far as um, the, the, the proper way to understand what you are trying to defend. I've read the Constitution more times in my entire life while I was in uniform on a morning watch or something than any previous time in my life because I knew it was my ass on the line for something that, hey, I want to understand what it is. The average kid, forget color, doesn't realize what the, doesn't know what the Constitution has. So yeah, without sure. going into a tangent or a side tangent or anything, the, the, the bias that's in the military that's still there um, in, in some aspects I believe it's overcomable over time. I do. But the first thing that had to fall was the structural segregation. And that came down. And, and when I say came down, I'm not talking back in 1947. I'm talking about here in the last 20 years in our career, it fell down. And it's interesting how war forces the military consistently in our country to evolve. I mean, you know, that's, yeah, I mean, that's. That's how I felt, you know, I mean, so I grew up in northern New England. You might have been the first black kid I ever met, buddy. Um, yep. You know, like, yep. like, you know, didn't, my town was, I think, 100% Caucasian, like, you know, yep. like, that, from that world, right? And so, you know, going overseas and, go, you know, for the first time and being in Iraq and, you know, working with folks who were hanging out out there, you know, alongside me, you know, some of whom literally were not American citizens, right? Like, we, we kind of forget about that. There, I kicked in doors alongside Marines who literally were not American citizens. And they were like, yeah, if I do this, I might get my citizenship. And right. I mean, you know, how do you come back from that and still, um, you know, how do you come back from that unchanged, right? Like, you know, I, I hold hope that, you know, the military can take, you know, someone from my, someone like me who's completely siloed, really, like, you know, growing up, um, and, you know, it, it opens your eyes, right? Like, we're, we really are, you know, kind of all, you know, pulling on the same team. Yep. And it, but it, it baffles me that some veterans have almost the opposite reaction. Like, I, I, I think there are veterans who get out and are, you know, essentially more racist than when they went in. I mean, yep. I th not, yes. not at all the majority, yes. but it happens. Right. I, and, I, and, I, and Dan, I've, I've sat down and I've thought about that one particular thing more so than I think any other personnel issue in the last three years, you know. Yeah. When I'm watching January 6th happen and I see vets doing this, I'm like, what yeah. is the motive? And part of me has come to the conclusion that, you know, Reagan back in the in the, in the 60s and 70s, he had that famous quote where he's like, freedom is not a birthright. It has to be fought for, protected, and passed to the next generation to do the same thing, right? Well, I honestly think that truth the veterans that get it, in my opinion, where they realize it's not about what you look like on the outside, it's about what you think here. 
I think those gentlemen understand, ladies and gentlemen, understand that process. I do think there's a small segment of the veteran population, like a like a smaller segment of Americans that believe just because you were born here, right? You won the birth canal lottery that, hey, that makes me singularly American. Yeah. And therefore, because I was born here and I've been socially conditioned to believe an American looks a certain way, then I will be the arbiter of the arbiter of what is American and what Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think that's a no, problem. And you would think yeah, the military right. would get that out, you know. But right, that's if there's what anything it is. that and I can't necessarily be, save those people. Yeah, I mean if there's anything that should be a meritocracy, like a pure meritocracy, it should be the military. Right? Like I mean, like there's lots of things that should be a meritocracy where um, but like, if you have the ability, like you should, I mean, you should rise up the ranks, right? Like that's, um, it's amazing to me right. to think that, um, people would care what color your skin is, you know, and, and it's, there are cliches about it, right? Like, you know, you don't care what the, the guy in the foxhole next to you looks like, right? You know, in but that's kind of true, man. <laughs> like, the, the it, 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 it's because it's true. Oh, when you look at, so here's the thing, here's, and we talk about the unconscious bias in the military, but let me give the military some 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 kudos here. And I don't think we do a good job yeah. talking about this. The military historically has been ahead of society when it came yep. to um, race relations, okay? We desegregated ourselves well before society. And here's the thing, because we can just say do it, you know, for the most part, we can do it now. Well, that's yeah. in charge of minds in the street. No. But, but here's the thing. You had the first black general, one star in the military happened right there in World War II, 1940, mm-hmm. 1941, actually. Mm-hmm. Benjamin O. Davis Sr. His son becomes the first black four-star in the Air Force, and he was the leader of the Tuskegee Airmen. That's one generation. If you compare something yeah. like that to Fortune 500 company acceleration, it's not necessarily happening. Sure. But here's the thing, the African-Americans, and I'm focusing on them because I'm obviously African-American, I study this history relent- relent- relentlessly, those advancements were paid for in blood to get there, to get there. One of the yeah. things that bothers me about this whole history debate is that, you know, teaching it in schools is if you look at popular culture and media and stuff like that, perfect example, they act like there were no black people at Iwo Jima in World War II, for example. Yeah. Okay. It took the Marines till 1944 to finally have black ones. And the thing is, as soon as they got done with boot camp, they shipped off to the Pacific. There were hundreds of black Marines going up, trying to get up to Mount Sarabachi, pulling huh. their white counterparts out. And as someone who has stood at the summit of that mountain and seeing how hard it is, it bothered me when I watched movies like Flag of Our Fathers or all these other movies that blacks are not portrayed or in Saving Private Ryan, the balloon brigade that was all black that had big, huge helium balloons attached to their waist to stop German Luftwaffe from strafing those that were landing at Normandy. Without them, the landing force gets wiped out and they can't maneuver. And so they're sitting ducks it's not talked about. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But interesting enough, the individuals that served with these units that were white, the Tuskegee Airmen, all this kind of stuff that got those bombers that got escorted, they came back to the United States, and those guys, a lot of them became the allies that allowed for the civil rights movement to happen. Now, without World War II, without the United States military, you don't have these advancements in regular society because what the yeah. military in our country is so brilliant at doing is stripping you down to your bare character bare character not the not the social conditioning you have not the freaking uh, social circles that you try to keep it's about you and then you're forced to rebuild yourself it strips a lot of crap away and then you yeah. realize what is worth it and so people ask how have you done this for 22 years and we can have between my wife and I have 13 moves my kids yeah. have switched schools like seven times and, you know all that you know why because I still believe in what this country can be and I'm telling you when you go you and I both know you go around the world man as flawed as we are 
we are still the best deal going. And we have a mechanism with the United States Constitution to, cons to continue, as Vince Lombardi said, to pursue perfection, knowing we'll never get there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so when I'm, I'm at a campus where I speak, it's a, Morehouse College is an all-male, historically black college university. And the conversations that I have with these young black men about this are fascinating because they take their experiences of being discriminated against, even in some cases violence against, and they really want to know if the dream that America says is possible is it achievable for them, right? And I look at them and I say, it's achievable, but like your forefathers, you're going to have to endure. But I go, unlike your forefathers, you have more allies now than they did. Because I think as we mature as a nation, we're getting better at this, but it's not going to happen overnight. What are you willing to sacrifice? What, yeah, I mean, what what do you say to, you know, a young black, you know, male or female who who wants to go into uh, an officer program in the military? I mean, what's your what's your frank discussion with them like? I'll give you a perfect example of that. So last, this past spring, we had a bunch of kids that were accepted to Morehouse College and they had other offers from other schools. And they had me on a panel because they're trying to figure out if they're going to come here and go someplace else. And so one kid raised his hand and he goes, you are a Naval officer, correct? I go, yes, I am. They go, we read your bio. You went to the Naval Academy. I go, yes. And this kid was Jay Rossi, so we understood what that was. And he said... If you had a choice between coming to Morehouse or going to the Naval Academy and you're going to be a Naval officer, what would you pick, knowing that I taught here? And I said, let me ask you one question. Do you want to be a career Naval officer or do you want to serve and, and, and get out after a couple of years? He said he didn't know. And I said, okay, let me tell you what I would tell my former self who grew up in this city and this, that, and the other. I go... The United States Naval Academy, I love it. I'm a trustee there. It is it is something that changed my entire life. But I go, the United States Naval Academy forged me into who I am today. I go, Morehouse College would nourish you if you came here. Those are two separate things. Because in the black community, you know what I'm saying, to be in an environment where you're feeling safe, that you're not on trial or you've been looked at at say a predominantly white institution like, you know, University of Georgia, something like that. That's that's cool. And, and and people take that for granted who are not minorities to just be yourself without worrying about the judgment. I go, yeah. but Navy was the complete opposite for me. It was the complete opposite. It was not a nursing environment. The few of us that were there, we still talk to one another because we're that tight because it took all of us to get through. But here's the thing I will tell you about Navy. Navy also allowed me to talk to people like you, to get to know people like you. And I realized you can't judge a book by its cover. Now, did it give me the support that I thought I needed mentally and emotionally? No. But it prepared me for what I was training to do. And that was invaluable. Yeah. It, it literally was invaluable. And so when I answered the kid, the mother had this look on her face. Has to say, I don't know what to do because she understands the value of what Annapolis would do for for her son. Right, but she's a mom, and it's her only son. You know, so you know, I don't, change, I, you know, I, changing. He came here, so yeah. Changing gears for a second, you know, there were we lost a couple of uh, your former teammates um, in the war on terror. And, uh, you know, for, for those who may not know, um, uh, one of our classmates, Brian Bourgeois, was the commanding officer of uh, a SEAL team who was killed in a training accident. Um, there was uh, a gentleman, uh, Marine Corps, uh, uh, Lieutenant Blacksmith, who was, who was killed in, in Fallujah when I was there. Um, I was not there when he was, when he was killed. I was in a, a different part of the city. But... Um, and, and, you know, there, there have been others. Um, and I was curious, um, you know, I was checking out your Twitter feed before, uh, we, before we chatted and, you know, you, you talked about the Navy football brotherhood and, and, um, 
I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, you know, guys who, uh, you know, you used to, you used to do uh, Oklahoma drills with that um, you know, made the ultimate sacrifice with. Well, so in my office, one of the few pictures I have is of our senior class. Yeah. I have it here, and I see it every day. And I look at it, and I look at a bunch of meatheads, to be honest with you, who, who, who had their hearts in the right place. Um, we would not be what you called stellar midshipmen when we were at the academy. But I find it interesting. <laughs> I find it interesting. The, the, the guys I played football with and a lot of athletes, whether it was triathlon to baseball to whatever the sport, when the country needed it for needed them for combat operations, we were a lot of us were in the forefront, like a lot of us. And I think Danny it's a Ron, Ron Winchester, athletes, but also the competition, and, yeah. of course. Yeah. Yep. Yep. First to first to do it. I mean, when I got to my first ship, we had to do a landing to go and go after Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines. I was the guy that was landing, yep. and I went with the Marines. And my my captain said straight up. Out of everybody in this wardroom, you play Navy football, you should be able to handle it. That's all he said to me. It was the coolest thing I ever heard. And, and yeah. I, when I was in high school, our football team had this thing called family. And to be honest, it was the first time that I had been exposed to a thought where family is not just something that relates you by blood. It's about how you feel about one another, what you're willing to do. And so one of the reasons I went to Annapolis, I wanted more of that. So to go from a family to this brotherhood, right? Obviously, you know, not knowing what was coming. Our senior year, we only won one game, and that was the Army game. And I remember taking off my pads for the last time, and I said, why did we go through all of this? And then 109 days later after graduation, the Twin Towers fell. Immediately I knew why we yeah. got it. It was like the good Lord was preparing us to be mentally tough enough to do what is necessary. And these guys, you know, we still we still have our chat groups and we talk. You know, we're now trying to focus on getting together when one of us, when it's not one of us leaving permanently. You know, all yeah. of us got together yeah. with, with, for, for Booge's funeral. And this thing with, with, with Bourgeois, with Brian, our offices were both on Little Creek in Virginia. Yeah. He would come over often and just see how I was doing because to this day, I still think the Navy made a mistake selecting me for command. So he was in charge of 15 <laughs> I was in charge of his run yeah. four. And so he'd come over and then we'd have lunch and he'd just sit there and just, hey, walk me through what you're thinking. And he was that, yeah. that, that ear and that, that I could lean on. And so, you know, I was at Annapolis when we lost Ron Winchester. I was in admissions and I sprinted yeah from Leahy Hall all the way over to the football office, I couldn't believe it. We have we sacrificed. But here's the thing, and I know Bouge would say this, and I know Ron would say it, and I know JP would say it. If they had to do it all over again, they'd make the same decisions. And I'm telling you, if it was me, I would feel the same way because we believe what we fought for, but the people that we fought for in our units was worth it. And then when so when someone comes to me and tells me like the Army Navy game not the biggest robbery in college football, I don't even engage them in conversation. I laugh and I walk off because they don't get it. They don't get yeah. served with guys that play football in the Army. They don't get it. And and these guys are my brothers for the rest of my life. My classmates, you guys, I'll be honest, Dan, when I got command, I did not want to let the class of two thousand one down because I'm like, I'm the Mendoza line. I'm supposed to be the bottom of what we are. And when you think about it, when you think about it, if I'm that last person that got through, right, and we say the mission of the academy is for commands, citizenship and government, then I damn well better be a good commander because I don't want to let the rest of you guys down. And people think I'm being funny. I'm, I'm, you can ask my wife. I need that. It's that important because we took an oath to do certain things for this country that the average person can't. We were trained to do it, and I did not want to be the weak link in that cable. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, thank you so much for your time, Bobby. I, I gotta tell I gotta tell the listeners one story that you probably don't remember, I'm guessing. Because it's mm. very but it sticks out in my mind. Okay. So Bobby was on the you know, he would play around and come out and run some track. 
in the wintertime. And so one day in the indoor track, you know, so I was on the track team and like, I was, I was just on the track team. I, I was terrible, but you know, I was, I was on the track team before practice and we're kind of sitting around, uh, on the high jump mats, uh, and me and, you know, and so all the, all the people who did like real events, like not middle distance or long distance, they, they call us the skinnies. You know, like if the yep. skinnies yep. are here, yep. you know, we come back yep. 10 mile run or whatever. And so we're sitting on the high jump mats and, and me and this John Hayes is uh, sitting there with us and uh, and there's a medicine, a medicine ball on the high jump mat. And, uh, you know, and so you come over and you lie on the high jump mat and, you know, we're just kind of being lazy and John's like takes the medicine ball and he puts it like right next to your ass and he's like, look, <laughs> he's like, look, Bobby's ass. Yeah. Is the same shape as the medicine ball. How come our ass doesn't look like that? <laughs> and it was just a really funny moment. And I was like, "Yeah, we're pretty skinny, man." You know. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, true story. So, hey, man, thank you for your time and, and thanks for you know what you yeah, did for house and, and uh, let's be in touch, like man. Athlete, I really appreciate it. Oh, definitely, man. I, I appreciate you guys having me, man. It's, it's an honor and a privilege, and keep doing what you guys are doing. All right, Bobby. We'll, we'll talk soon, man. Thank you. No problem. Thanks, man. Thank you to everyone for listening. This is going to be an exciting year for the podcast. We've got some fantastic guests lined up. You can find future episodes here on Resolute Square. And we also want to say, if you're looking for any more information about the organization, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter or online at www.vfrl.org. 